Wow. Meaningless. Right? Like everything is, is meaningless. Like if everything is meaningless, then why on earth are we here? Like, like why, why actually bother with anything? Why did we bother to get up this morning? Why did we bother to, to fret through everything that we had to work through this week if the Bible is actually telling us that everything is actually meaningless? Like what's, what's the point? Well, actually, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point of the author of Ecclesiastes. This is a book in the Bible, folks. Actually, one of the least preached books in the Bible. This morning, we're, we're going to begin a new series, working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. How many people are super excited that we are going to work through this, this book? Now, now, some of you might be asking yourselves, why would he be studying this book? Like, like of all the books in the Old Testament, he could, have, he could have chosen one that is much happier, much more encouraging. Now, that's true, but folks, this is like a gem of a book. Like I said, it's one of the least preached books. So why is it in the Bible anyway? Well, that's actually an interesting question. And it's one worth answering before we get into the actual book itself. So will you bear with me for just a few minutes as I kind of answer the question of like, why is Ecclesiastes one of the wisdom books, one of three? How many people know what the wisdom books are? Right? Most people get two. They get Ecclesiastes and they get Proverbs, but they tend to miss Job. Job is actually a wisdom book, not just like a sad book about a guy losing everything. It's actually a book of wisdom. So if you just bear with me, I want to take a few minutes to just kind of walk through uh, what I actually think will help us gain some context in the book of Ecclesiastes and why it exists and why the author is talking about it this way. Because I actually view Ecclesiastes as an incredibly powerfully positive book. But it kind of depends. It kind of depends on how you look at the function of the Bible in the first place, actually how you read scripture, how you go about uh, what you actually think the Bible is all about, what it's for, how it's used. Now, many Christians and non-Christians, they read the Bible and they believe that the Bible is literally like a book of rules, like a manual that tells you exactly how to live an ethical life. It's like we go to the Bible to find out answers to how we go about living ethically today in today's world. I, I hear it all the time, right? People quoting passages to claim, well, the, the Bible says this, and so because the Bible says that, we can't do this, or because the Bible says that, we can do this. And so we turn the Bible into like uh, this manual of how to live how to respond in our lives. And the challenge with this approach to the Bible is that it actually, I don't know if you've noticed over the thousands of years of Christianity, that approaching the Bible this way actually creates major conflicts. Like, like the minute the Bible seems to contradict itself, now everybody just went, <gasps> the pastor just said that the Bible at times seems to contradict itself. We have a heretic for a pastor. You do. 
So we spin out of control. We spin out of control because we're like, the book of Ecclesiastes seems to be the opposite of what the book of Proverbs is saying. <gasps> what do we do? Or we like, because of the, <gasps> we run out and we take apologetic classes to learn how to talk our way out of or through the conflict. But, but what about the fact that the Bible doesn't address everything? So if the manual in life, like you'd think it'd be like part A, part B, part C, put A and B together and you produce C and so on and so forth. Like this is how life works. And so just follow this list of rules and regulations and your ethics will be great. And when you need to know how to do the next thing in life, just go back to the manual and you'll find it. But what about the fact that the Bible doesn't give us answers for everything? Because it actually does, but it doesn't if you read it like a manual. I mean, we've fought about this, folks, for like literally fought, like wars have happened over interpretation issues in the Bible. We've created denominations that hate one another over differences of opinion around what we think that the Bible says. So for sake of this series, I want to throw something out there and I want you to ponder this and it's going to be a little uncomfortable for you. I want you to ponder that maybe God actually never meant for the Bible to be a manual, that there was a different purpose for the scriptures. Maybe God isn't asking us to read the Bible like a manual where we look up proof texts that shape our ethical stance in life. Maybe, just, I'm just throwing it out there, okay? Just maybe the Bible is God's way of communicating his story and how we are connected to him. It, like maybe the Bible calls us to learn to think. Ready? Maybe the Bible calls us to learn to think about the deeper things in life, rather than just looking for simple manual type answers. What if I said that the Bible's goal is more about leading humanity into a life of maturity rather than a list of rules and regulations? The Old Testament tried the list of rules and regulations, and Jesus had to come. And so the Old Testament really is like immaturity, and the New Testament is calling us to maturity, essentially teaching us how to live life through the lens of wisdom and faith rather than do's and don'ts. Would that change how you go about your relationship with God? If it, if it shifted the way that you think about what the Bible is even actually meant for, would it change how you use the scriptures and read the scriptures? Would it change your ability to love another person who doesn't agree with you? The book of Ecclesiastes helps us to learn to ponder the big questions of life. Now, now, how many of us spend time pondering the meaning of life? Like, this is something that actually kind of consumes a lot of your thought. Am I very alone 
in the room. Yeah, I get, I get made fun of for this. I've actually had people say, like, you just think about things too much. Like, you think and ponder. Like, that stuff's useless. Like, we, we actually have things we need to do. Why do you spend all your time thinking about these? You philosophy people, right? Like, you get us nowhere in the world. Don't think about those kinds of things. Like, just get stuff done. How many of us actually spend time pondering the deeper questions and looking for the deeper answers? You see, here's actually part of the problem, is very few do. This is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes calls us out on. It's going to challenge you to think. It says that maybe we spend all our time focused, folks, you ready? On all the wrong things. Simply because we don't want to take the time to ask questions that we think don't actually get us anywhere. Ecclesiastes is a book in the Bible, folks, in which the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says is good for teaching and rebuking. In fact, I believe it's one of the most beautiful, profound, and dark books in all of Scripture. It calls us folks to think, to ponder big questions, and to find answers to those questions even when we don't like the answer. Yeah, like it has, it seems to have more of a, a negative tone. And, and to be honest, as we walk through this, there's going to be times where you're feeling like it's super negative and then I'm going to kind of pull it out of the muck at the end. But I can't, I can't give you the whole answer because we're going to do this over several weeks in a series and work through the entire book. And so I, I, I can only give you little snapshots at the end of kind of where things are heading because actually he summarizes the entire meaning of life in one sentence. The book of Ecclesiastes, like if the Bible is moving us toward living a mature life full of faith, then the book of Ecclesiastes can actually teach us something very valuable. It can help us to deconstruct everything that we thought we knew about the world, and it reduces us, I need you to hear me, it reduces us to understand our deep need for Jesus. I think that that's actually a problem in our world. We don't actually have this deep need anymore for Jesus. Jesus because we don't think about the bigger things of life. We just worry about the everyday hustle and bustle of life. And so then Jesus just actually isn't that needed. The church just isn't really that needed. It's like a secondary piece of the puzzle of what actually matters in my life. But it's, it's helping us make the good news good news. That's what Ecclesiastes does. Because frankly, in our world today, I'm not sure that people see the gospel as good news. I think they may see it as restrictive and staunch. Yet, as everybody in this room knows, I'm sure the Bible is good news. The gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ if we're able to ask bigger questions around life and death and what the purpose of everything around us might actually be. So these questions that we tend to ignore are actually important because they are the questions, folks, that will help you lead life into maturity in Christ and gain a deeper understanding of God's story and how all of this crazy thing that we call life fits into that grander 
story. But, but these, are, these are challenging things. And there's one challenge that I think we have that we maybe even don't even realize we have. And so I need to put a caveat to this before we get into the passage one more time uh, of just how we go about understanding this book. And there's this challenge that we have that essentially I call the myth of religious fulfillment. It's really about our corrupted motive that's probably driven by sin, our corruptive motive behind everything we do as human beings. So you understand that basic concept in the Bible, right? Is that most of the way we think is corrupted by sin and not actually pure, not actually Jesus-centric. And so we have to recognize that. We have to just call that out, put that up at the, the forefront and say, yep, like I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. It's just a, a small thing. Now, this myth of religious fulfillment, actually, I stole that from a book. I just don't remember what book, or I would actually cite it for you, but I am going to give credit to someone else that I just don't remember who. Uh, But they call this the myth of religious fulfillment. We're all following something. Atheist folks are not actually atheists. Atheism doesn't exist because atheism itself has become a religion. They still believe in something. They still follow some form of religious structure. And the answer to that mystery is because it's embedded into us to seek life to be that way. But, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm not going to talk about atheists or different people. I just want to talk about Christianity, which is interesting because if we're talking about the myth of religious fulfillment, you would think that Christianity would be the religion that brings the most fulfillment. That's what most Christians would say. But we often hear this phrase in Christianity, invite Jesus into your heart. This concept proves my exact point of where I'm going to go with this. We all do religion, most of us, for one main purpose, what we get out of it. It's, It's human nature. We do things with the motive of receiving Something. Even the best of us often are doing things because we know we're going to receive something in return. So I invite Jesus into my heart in order to enhance my life to receive something like maybe my ticket to heaven or something like that. It's different for everybody, but often our motive is based on receiving something that will make our lives better or that we get something from. This underlying motive is what causes us all kinds of problems. So how we look at scripture and then this underlying motive that's actually driven by sin. It causes us problems in simple things like explaining suffering. Christians struggle to explain how a loving God who who gave his life for the world would possibly love his people by allowing them to suffer. And our expectations of God, they, come, they become skewed compared to how the Bible actually explains them. Like, after all, don't we get something out of this? This is the great myth of religious fulfillment. Since I have given God my life, now shouldn't he give me a better life or a more simple life? This kind of stuff has penetrated churches everywhere. It's our 
It's our national sales pitch. Accept Jesus and you will receive this, this, and this. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to beat this way of thinking out of us. Are you ready for it? Let's dive into the text. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Right away, I'm guessing anybody who grew up in the church or has read the Bible, right away your minds went to the name of Solomon, who was David's son, the wisest and the wealthiest king to ever live. And traditionally, this is what scholars often thought, that the author of this book was Solomon. But I do think that it's important to notice something that probably you didn't notice when I just read that passage. Notice the way that the opening words of Ecclesiastes are written. These are the words of the teacher. There's two. There's two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the narrator who opens it, in the middle fixes a couple things, and at the end summarizes it all. So the narrator is actually the author, and the author doesn't tell us who it is. It's, it's important to notice that kind of stuff, the way that something's worded, right? Remember, Ecclesiastes is going to call, call us to ponder bigger things, to not just read the words alone, but to be seeking the Spirit's guidance as you read them. And so the book opens and it closes with the narrator, and the narrator is going to introduce us to the second person, and that is the teacher. So the book's anonymous, but it's not written by... Solomon. That would be contemporary scholarship today. Uh, most scholars would now agree that Solomon himself did not actually write the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's, there's an interesting thing here. The, the Hebrew, now I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm depending on Hebrew scholars for some of this information, but the, we translate the word teacher, or some uh, versions of the Bible call it preacher, or kolhilet is the actual Hebrew word, which means one who speaks in a gathering. Now, there's a lot of examples of this form of Hebrew literature, like the book of Ecclesiastes. So to Hebraic thinking, this kind of book is like totally normal. It wouldn't throw them off at all. And scholars actually call it something. They call it royal fictional autobiographies. Now, all the Christians just went... <gasps> He used the word fictional, like this can't be. We really do have a heretic. I told you, you do. Somebody's going to pull that out on the internet and just put it out. It's all good. No one's watching anyway. Now, what that essentially means, folks, is that the teacher might actually not literally be Solomon, but that it would be based on the teachings of Solomon. So it might actually not be him directly, but it would be based on his teaching. So let me just give you kind of a contemporary version of this. It actually could have been written like 500 years after Solomon died. So the point of this kind of Hebraic writing is actually kind of cool, and it doesn't change anything in how we view Scripture. Essentially, think about it like this. 
Someone 100 years later writes a thought experiment. It'd be something like 500 years from now, someone wanting to write reflections on politics and culture in the 21st century, and they write it from the perspectives of Barack Obama. I was going to use Trump, but I thought, it, I thought it was just safer. They're not trying to trick you or anything. Okay, they're not, trying to, they're not trying to dupe you. They're not trying to lie to you or nothing like that. What they're doing is inviting you into this thought experience and asking you to put yourself into the life of the character, right? If we can put ourselves into the shoes of the character, we're more apt to understand the thought patterns of the character. And so basically, if you were Barack Obama, how would you reflect on the past and the present? So in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're being invited to see life as Solomon sees it. So whether Solomon wrote it or Solomon didn't write it, we could fight about that, especially if like, you need to fight about things with the Bible. But the reality is, is that these are the thoughts, these are the things that would come from Solomon, the greatest, wisest, most successful king in history. And so here is his conclusion. He's going to summarize everything for you. Uh, in, in the first three verses. So we opened with everything, you know, the, the, these are the words of the teacher, King David, son who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Well, that's fun. In the introduction, the narrator just told you what the book is about. Like, it's like... Amen, let's pray. This is what it's going to just walk you through to this conclusion that everything is meaningless. Right away, he gives us the conclusion, kind of. The conclusion is that it's all meaningless. Okay, so we got to park here for a bit in order to understand something extremely important. The Hebrew word that the, I'm using the New Living Translation, some of you may, may be using the NIV, it doesn't matter. It both interprets this one Hebrew word as meaningless. And some of our more traditional translations like the King James and the NRSV uh, would interpret it as vanity. It comes from a Hebrew word called, named hevel. And it's actually, the word hevel is used 40 times within the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. So whenever you're reading wisdom literature, a word that is used 40 times might be trying to tell you something. Ecclesiastes is only roughly about eight pages in your entire Bible. And so in those eight pages, give or take with your translation, that word is used, hevel, is word used 40 times within 12 chapters. So it's an incredibly important word, and we need to park there for a little bit, because I think that the translation of meaningless or the translation of vanity doesn't actually really capture the Hebraic meaning behind Hevel. So this is one of the challenges that we have in the English language. We don't have great ways of explaining things, and the Hebrews, they really do. They love to paint a picture for you, right? You got like left-brained and right-brained people. Uh, you know, they want to paint that picture for you. And this word hevel in the, in the Bible is a mysterious word in the Hebrew. Scholars have actually struggled with it for thousands of years. So 
So I'm going to give you the most, most contemporary kind of scholarship around the word hevel, because if we don't understand the word hevel, you will absolutely not understand the book of Ecclesiastes at all. It actually kind of has two meanings behind it in uh, the Ecclesiastes text. It, it's used two different ways. The first way essentially means something that is temporary or fleeting. So for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse eight, it says, when people live to be very old, this is, this is exciting. When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. But let them also remember that there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Everything still to come is, is hevel, is temporary, is fleeting. That's the way that he's using meaningless in that specific verse. Now, the second way that the teacher uses the word hevel is actually the more dominant way. So the first way, he uses it only in a few passages that way. Uh, the rest of it, he uses the word this way. And it's actually really profound. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. And this is not all that is hevel in our world. In this life, listen, listen to what he's saying. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked, and wicked people are often treated as though they were good. Can I get an amen? There's truth to that, isn't there? This is so hevel. Hevel, in this context, is, is the way that the book means it the most, and it means an enigma or a paradox. Let me kind of explain it like this. I wanted to smoke on stage today, but my wife thought it wasn't a good, good way to, you, to do an analogy. So, so I, I, just to let you know, I really wanted you to grasp this in a really deep way, but I'm going to take the advice of my wife because the Bible's led me to wisdom. The reason I wanted to do that is I wanted to actually not smoke a cigarette, but they have those things out now called vapes. And I wanted to puff some smoke out of my mouth with a vape because that actually describes exactly what he's talking about. Smoke or a vapor. But just like kind of try to picture this with me. It, it, it's so powerful if I could have just shown you, but whatever. Picture a vapor of smoke coming out. You see it. You definitely know that it's there. And then it just progressively vaporizes. It just kind of disappears. That's kind of Hevel. Kind of. This vapor that just kind of, it's there. You know it's there. And it just kind of disappears. But actually, if we get a little bit deeper into Hevel, a better way to describe Hevel, 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 is this. As the vapor of smoke goes out and progressively disappears... Hevel actually is the act of trying to grab the smoke. Have you, have you ever tried to do that? See, you see how my analogy would have been so helpful, right? Smoke goes out as a vapor. Not only does it just disappear, but we know it's there, right? But because we know it's there, we try to grasp it. We try to grab it. And what happens? Your hand goes right through it and you can't catch the smoke. It disappears. It's not possible 
to catch. We know it's there. We have the ability to understand and see that it exists, but we have the inability to grasp it. So when the teacher says that everything is meaningless or hevel, he's not actually meaning that it has no purpose. See, that's what we hear meaningless and we're like purposeless, not doesn't matter. That's not really what he's saying. Essentially, he's saying that we will never fully understand why life is the way that it is. Now, depending on how you look at the Bible, you're either going to really struggle with that or you're really going to find life from it. especially in the difficult times in life. You see, if you come at it where the Bible's giving you something, it's a rules and regulations and a how-to book, a manual, and how to live, you'll struggle to explain the difficulties of life. You'll struggle during the difficulties of life. But if you actually understand what the author means by hevel, you'll embrace the difficulties of life because you'll understand that you can't understand. So with this understanding around the word hevel, around the way that we look at the Bible, around the the myth of religious fulfillment, now I need you to remember all of that for like the next eight weeks because that's going to help us walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's go to chapter three, uh, sorry, chapter one, verse three, where it says, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun. We get up every day, right? We get up every day and we like work hard. And so the author's like, what do people actually get for all that work, working hard? He says, generations come and generations go, but the earth, it just never seems to really actually change. The sun rises and the sun sets and then it hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north, around and around it goes, blowing in circles, running, uh, sorry, rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. You ever thought about that? Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water actually returns again to the rivers and it flows out again to the sea, this cyclical thing that never seems to kind of complete itself. The cycle of life, he says, just keeps going. Around and around again, it's, it's heavy, it's temporary, it's but a vapor. Before you know it, it's gone. Now listen to where the teacher goes with this, verse 8. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're just, we're just not content. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but it's actually old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations. This is comforting, folks. And in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing right now. Hmm. Seems super encouraging, doesn't it? 
No matter how hard we try, I want you to catch what he's saying. No matter how hard we try, we're never satisfied. We're never content. This, he says, is exhausting. Then it gets depressing, right? It gets depressing because he says, no one is going to remember anything that we've done anyway. How many people, let me ask you this question. Now, some of you might know this. Good for you. I do not. How many people know the full name, full name, not just first name or last name, the full name of their great, 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 great grandfather? I don't remember the full name of my great grandparents, and I knew them. How many know, if you do know their full name, how many know what they did for a living? Kind of sad, right? Sort of makes Ecclesiastes correct. Verse 12, I, the teacher, was king of Israel and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under the sun. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all hevel, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. So I said to myself, look... I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. That's an interesting statement, which actually kind of points us toward that it might not literally be Solomon writing. Because if you, we'll see how many people know their Old Testament history very well. How many kings were there before Solomon in Jerusalem? One. Dad. Because dad was the one who made, he captured Jerusalem and made Jerusalem the capital city. So Saul was not the king of Jerusalem. Dad, David, was the first king of Jerusalem. And so literally, he is simply saying, I'm smarter and better than dad. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them, than dad. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. If, you ever, if we all went outside and did a thought experiment right now and we started to chase the wind, who believes they would catch it? The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief to increase knowledge only increases sorrow. So the teacher sets out to understand the meaning and purpose of why life happens why we do all of this, and his conclusion is, it's hevel. It's something that is but a vapor, that will, you see it, it exists, it disappears, and when you try to grasp it, your hand just goes right through it, and you just can't fully grasp what's going on. Life under the sun is what he says. It's a phrase that's used 30 times. In this book, he says, life under the sun is like chasing the wind. We look pretty silly chasing the wind. 
In other words, the more he worked, the more he chased after things in this life, the more he noticed it was all hevel, it was all temporary, it was all but a vapor. Chasing after things is like trying to capture smoke with your hand. And because life is like this, we don't ever have contentment. We're truly never satisfied and we are exhausted. Essentially, if we work from the framework, folks, that we have like 70, maybe 80, maybe even 90 years here on this earth, that's it. What are we to do with that time? Ecclesiastes tells us that what we're currently doing is chasing after the wind, becoming exhausted, and never truly finding contentment. These folks are the kinds of things that scripture challenges us with. It calls you to think about these things because if we don't, then we just live a life that's all about something we can't grasp and we can't get. Essentially, folks, we end up struggling, we end up disappointed, and we end up angry at the world. Now, doesn't that just describe how many of us are feeling right now? Like this past year, God has been very distinctly speaking to Christians. I guess the question is, is did we hear him? Or did we chase after the wind? Are we trying to grasp the vapor and we're missing the point? How do we look at scripture? Are we using it to fight with one another, especially over this past year? Talk about a great example of chasing after the wind is this whole year that we're still in. Many of us have had a flood of emotions trying this and to bring ourselves contentment and happiness. And frankly, I don't know about you, but like nothing seems to be working, does it? And a lot of us are like, if the restrictions, if just this would happen, then I'll be content. No, you won't. Because you weren't content before COVID. And you're not going to be content after. Because frankly, nothing seems to be working, does it? Well, why? Because it's all hevel. This entire year and next year and the year after that, the Bible says is nothing but hevel. We keep trying to grab the smoke over and over again. What if that's not what God wants for us? What if that's not what God wants? What if life is not about figuring out what makes you happy? You see, we, we Christians, we're further into the story than the author of Ecclesiastes, aren't we? So I find it really interesting that Like when you read Ecclesiastes and you look at our world and even reflecting on myself and you're looking at self and you're like, oh my goodness, like I am, I'm grasping, I'm chasing the wind. I'm like, oh, you know, and you start to kind of get depressed about that. But like we have something that the author of Ecclesiastes didn't fully have. He's gonna kind of get us there. I can't give it to you yet because it's summarized in one line in the final chapter of the book. But, but we kind of know already, don't we? Life is hevel, but that is also hevel. 
Follow me. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Now, keep in mind, this is a man who's been shipwrecked, who's been beaten near death, often has no food. His churches have turned on him. Like, he, he, Paul has been through a lot. He's got a thorn in his side that the Lord won't remove. Like, Paul, of anybody who's, who's serving the Lord, you would think the Lord would at least give him something out of it, right? Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 4. Not that I was ever in need. So he just received money from another church. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. Now, this is, this is key. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The Apostle Paul calls the ability to find contentment in this life learning a secret. Why? Because it's a secret that Solomon struggled to find or the teacher struggled to find. Something that many in the past have just not been able to figure it out. And Paul now gets it. And the answer, folks, is actually really simple. It's Jesus. You know that person that we put over here because we're trying to get all these things over here? Jesus is actually the one that we're to shape our lives around. Our lives are to be shaped around serving Jesus. That is the secret that Paul has figured out about what the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about. The folks, everything is hevel. Most of the things that you're going about doing today, if Jesus is not at the center of it, it's chasing after the wind. It's but a vapor. It's something you will never fully grasp. It will never bring you happiness. You will never be satisfied. I have uh, several really, really, really wealthy friends who are really, really, really miserable people. When I was in Guatemala City, that's actually, I, I preached in the morning at a church of 10,000 people in the city. And it was like rocking and people were just like, ah, you know, big charismatic Guatemalan church. But I, I really felt like Jesus was absent. There's a lot of hype. There was a lot of stuff going on, but I really felt like Jesus was absent. And that night I preached in a little church that had like a tin roof and like half walls and nothing but a snare drum at the front. And when we walked into this village, do you know what I saw in everybody? Joy. Do you know what I felt in the service? The presence of Jesus as they danced to the front to give away their money. Some of them even brought chickens just to feed the pastor. In North American culture, we're like, hide all that. Keep all that a secret. Nobody needs to know. And we're miserable. Chasing after the wind. It's incredibly encouraging to me, and I hope that you're going to see this as we move along. I know it sounds a little depressing. I get it. But it's actually incredibly encouraging if we could grasp the concept that everything is 
hevel, but that there's a secret that we have been given through Jesus Christ that leads us to a place of contentment. And that is where God wants you to be. So we can choose hevel or we can choose Jesus.